when the disciples of Jesus first dropped their nets and followed after him, I do not imagine they had any sense of the journey that he was about to take them on. When they first heeded his call to follow him, I do not imagine they had any sense of the level of righteousness to which he would hold them. I don't imagine they had any sense of the degree to which he would command obedience in their lives. Day after day, undoubtedly, Jesus was instructing them in the issue of ethics, their morality, and his instruction is represented for us in this, his most famous sermon, where he gives in a condensed form what is the Christian ethic, and all the way through he commands them towards a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. They could have had no idea. In the same vein, when the disciples first dropped their nets that day on the shores of Galilee and walked after Jesus, I don't imagine they had any sense of the blessing that was coming their way. They could not have anticipated just how much they would be flourishing as a consequence of following Christ. As he taught them day after day what it means to be a disciple of his he was leading them into increasing degrees of blessing. And it is exactly the same for us today. When someone first puts their faith in Christ, trusts Him for salvation, surely they do not fully understand the level of righteousness that He will demand in their life. They may have some notion of what it means to be a believer, to walk in obedience. They have yet to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What it is to sit under God's word week after week for as long as the Lord has you on earth and the persistent righteousness that he demands of those that follow his son. And in the same way, when someone first puts their faith in Christ undoubtedly, they cannot fathom how great is the blessing to be counted as a disciple of his. In this text today, Matthew 5, 33 and following, Jesus broaches the topic of integrity. He commands his disciples to heed his words. He demonstrates that those who truly follow after him will be people of integrity. Jesus shows us that if you follow after him, you will, as a matter of fact, be someone who gives your word to an issue, to a matter, and follows through on it. To be a disciple of the Lord Jesus means that when you say yes, you mean nothing less than yes. When you say no, you mean exactly no. It's not intended to be a burden. It is for our good, there is great blessing in integrity. 
Jesus expects as he gives these words and they're ringing in the ears of all those who listen undoubtedly for days, weeks after and they heed what it means to be a disciple. Jesus expects that we would cast off the burden of dishonesty. That we would listen to him and make whatever changes are necessary so that we are no longer carrying around with us the burden of dishonesty. Rather, that we would know the blessing of integrity. And as we work through these few verses this morning, those are the two headings that I want to order our thoughts under. Considering what is that burden of dishonesty, and then how Jesus pushes back on the prevalent teaching of his day to show us the blessing of integrity. There'll be our two points, beginning with the burden of dishonesty. If you've been tracking with us, you know that we're in a section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is undermining deliberately, knowingly, the teaching of the Pharisees. He's pushing back against what they had done with the law in their day. And here in verse 33, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. You should perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Similar to last week, this is not a direct quote from any Old Testament scripture. Rather, it seems to represent something of a synopsis, a summary of the Pharisees' teaching in his day on the issue of taking an oath. Leviticus 19, as well as other passages, would have been in view as the Pharisees sought to teach those around them what it means to be trustworthy, dependable, to be a person of integrity. Jesus encapsulates that teaching with this summary statement, you've heard the Pharisees teach you this. They tell you, don't swear falsely, rather perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Now it seems fairly reasonable what the Pharisees were teaching. So what is Jesus' issue? What exactly is he pushing back against? Well, the Pharisees desired to be men who were of high esteem, highly regarded in the community. The Pharisees wanted to have that reputation of integrity. And so they would frequently verify or validate their words by way of an oath. Or a vow. That was intended to be a, a stamp, a seal of approval. You can trust me because I have sworn by something. The Pharisees were not permitted to say the name of the Lord. No one was. And so rather than appeal to his name, Yahweh, rather than swear by God's name, they would swear by something associated with his name. We see some examples Jesus is using, verse 34 and following. The Pharisees would, it seem, typically swear or take an oath by heaven. That's his footstool it's, or his throne. It's associated with God. Or perhaps they would swear by earth, the footstool of God. Or perhaps by Jerusalem. These are all things associated with God. And by swearing with those things in view... The implication was, I'm appealing to God without saying his name, and now you can trust me. 
The problem is, as we understand, the Pharisees had developed a very convoluted, complex system of swearing, of taking oaths. It goes far, far beyond the few examples Jesus gives us here, and it was intentionally complex so as to allow the Pharisees many loopholes by which they would not be true to their word. The issue actually comes up again within this gospel in Matthew 23. Jesus will speak a second time about the issue of integrity, and there he'll give a yet more specific example It would seem that they would sometimes appeal to the temple and swear by the temple and other times by the gold on the temple. And there was a distinction between the two in the Pharisees' minds. And their system was so convoluted that it deliberately created many, many loopholes that allowed for them to not be people of their word. So they could swear by the temple And then they didn't come through on their promise and they were not culpable. I'm not guilty of breaking the law as we see it in Leviticus 19 and other passages because actually I swore by the temple and not by God himself would be how the Pharisees would reason. So they were always above reproach by virtue of their convoluted system. Now there's more to it than that. There's another layer that we need to consider, but we could just pause there and simply acknowledge that the Pharisees, the teachers of the day, were presenting themselves as trustworthy, but their words didn't match their actions. They presented themselves as men of integrity, and yet what they did was not an accurate reflection of what they said they would do. Their words did not correspond to their actions. Their actions didn't correspond to their words. They were not men of integrity. And because of that, they were carrying around an enormous burden. What is the burden of dishonesty? What does it mean to be someone who lacks integrity? First and foremost, to lack integrity is to lay a seedbed for lies. Now, I want to be careful. To lack integrity is not necessarily to be a liar. There is an appropriate distinction that we should make. If I say to you, I'll be there at 10 a.m., and then I don't prioritize that, I don't do everything I can to be there, and I just don't show up at all, that doesn't necessarily mean that when I made the commitment, I was intentionally lying. A lack of integrity is not synonymous with telling lies, but understand that one leads to the other. It is the seed bed for lying. If I say often enough, I'll be there at 10 I will serve in this way. I will pray for you. And then I never follow through on my actions. I start to become very at home with being someone who doesn't do what I said I would do. And before long, I am quite content to tell lies. And you do not want to be playing that game. The scripture speaks so clearly to the issue of lying And we read that God hates a lying tongue. Proverbs chapter 6, there are seven things the Lord hates, not least 
a lying tongue. 1 Corinthians 6 and Revelation 21, those who lie will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't want to be skirting around those issues. You want to distance yourself from the possibility that you are now a liar. Because the scriptures speak so emphatically against it, and a lack of integrity is the seedbed for lies. What else is the burden of dishonesty? It's a pathway to discontentment. Now, why do I say that? In the very first chapter of our Bibles, God showcases his creating works, the pinnacle of which is humanity, and we receive his image. We're the only ones in all of the created order that are labeled as his image bearers, speaking not so much to the fact that we do inherit the communicable attributes of God, but the image of God speaks more to an office, to a function. When God labels Adam and Eve and indeed all of humanity as his image bearers, he sets us up on earth as his representatives. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are on earth to represent God. That's our purpose. And I can't help but think as I look around and see so many issues in society that they can be traced back to the fact that we have lost a sense of our purpose. When you do not faithfully represent the God who made you, you are walking in a pathway of discontent. It is when you do what God has put you on earth to do that you know the utmost contentment. So now think what it means to represent God faithfully. We are his image bearers. Our God is a God of integrity. As we have sung this morning and as the scriptures testify in Genesis chapter 1, our God is the God who says, let there be light. And there was light immediately and exactly in accordance with God's words, the actions came to pass. They didn't differ from what he said. Exactly as he spoke it, the actions were fulfilled. He is a God of integrity. Or fast forward by way of example to the book of Kings. One punishment after another is visited upon his people in the book of Kings. Why? They're not arbitrary. They're not random. God is not making up these punishments as they go along. Every single punishment shown to the letter is fulfilling God's word as it was given in his law. God promised them, if you disobey me, this is what will happen to you. And the book of Kings demonstrates not only the certainty of his word, but the integrity of God himself. He is a God whose actions correspond exactly with his words. And so to walk in a path of contentment as his image bearer, his representative, is at least to be a person of integrity. When you lack integrity, you are choosing to fail in your representative role and you are walking out a path of discontentment. And finally, we might say the burden of dishonesty is that it muddies your testimony. As people look in on the church, 
as they look in on your life, they know what to expect. They may not know what is in this book. They may not know the doctrines of the faith. But if they know you're a Christian, they know what they should see. They know what they should expect from one who professes to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And amongst many other things, they would anticipate seeing someone who says, who does exactly what they say, who follows through on their word, who is a person of the utmost integrity. And so as you lack that, you carry a burden of dishonesty in so much as now the gospel is not receiving the glory that it ought in your life. Now they have good reason to make conclusions about the Lord Jesus that would follow along the lines of he can't be that worthy. He can't be that special a savior. He's not worthy of my all because look how his disciples behave. Now it actually goes further than that. The Pharisees didn't do what they said they would do. But it goes deeper. There is a connection between our text today and the text we looked at last week. There is a flow of thought that runs all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. What is the connection between the topic of divorce and the topic of oaths and vows If you think back to last week, you'll remember that the law to which the Pharisees were appealing when they permitted divorce, all the way back in Deuteronomy 22, that law was never intended to permit or condone divorce, but simply to regulate it. It's one of the principles that I tried to highlight last week. The law as it was found in the Old Testament wasn't there to permit nor condone, but to regulate life in the land, the connection is very similar principle here in this text. As we look at all of the texts in the Old Testament that speak about taking oaths, it is not so much that the oath is the means by which someone is rendered trustworthy. The oath is not there to effect integrity. All of the laws concerning vows and oaths in the Old Testament are there so as to represent a trustworthiness that already exists within you. You give an oath, you make a vow, it is a a stamp or an outworking of a level of integrity that already exists within you. And what the Pharisees had done is completely tipped those laws on their head so that now they were appealing to either God or things of value their own head as the very means by which they could be trusted. As if by taking the vow, making the oath, they would then be effectively trustworthy. This is why Jesus responds so emphatically, so absolutely, and says, do not take an oath at all. Don't take any oaths, he says. Meaning, Don't take oaths to render within yourself a level of trustworthiness. They are meaningless. Don't use oaths and vows and promises as the means to effect integrity in your life. Don't take those oaths. 
consider, just by way of example, the wedding ceremony. Perhaps the scenario where we're most accustomed to seeing people take an oath, a vow. You have to understand there is nothing inherent about the words themselves that render the husband and the wife faithful. If the husband and the wife come down the aisle with really no integrity in their heart, no desire to be faithful to the other in this union, it doesn't matter what they say during that ceremony. They can give the the most upright, pleasing to the ear oaths to one another in the sight of all that does not render them trustworthy. By contrast, if they walk down the aisle determined by God's grace to be faithful unto one another, now the oath is an outworking of that level of integrity. It's a good and a proper commitment in the presence of all that represents what already exists within their hearts. Or consider a court of law. When the accused stands in the dock and he is asked to take an oath to tell the truth. You have to be realistic about what's going to happen. If he is guilty of the crime, and more to the point, if he has been living in such a way that honesty and integrity have not been part of his life up until that moment, it doesn't matter what oath you make him say. It's not there embedded in his heart, and so the oath cannot effect it. It's not going to bring it about. Jesus is not against oaths, vows. We can take them. We have to realize their role. If you end up in a court of law for whatever reason, please don't say, my pastor told me I'm not allowed to take an oath. You can. Jesus operated under an oath at the point of his trial. It's fine, but you have to understand the role they play. And so you see, the deeper problem is not simply that the Pharisees' actions didn't mirror their words, but their words didn't mirror their hearts. The deeper problem is the heart issue. They were speaking in such a way that they presented themselves to their disciples as men of integrity, trustworthiness. And in their heart, they had absolutely no intent of following through on what they said. At the heart level, they were corrupt. At the heart level, they lacked integrity. And therein, we see even more the burden of dishonesty. It is a terrible thing to lie to yourself. It is a terrible thing to say something which you don't believe. A terrible thing to make a confession, some kind of belief, assent to a fact or an ideology that in your heart you don't actually subscribe to. You make yourself a prisoner to your lie. And before long, you don't know what you believe. You hear this principle etched out over and over and over again 
in the testimonies of those that lived through the communism of the Soviet Union. Over and over again, whatever else they say, do not lie to yourself. They may take you physically as a prisoner. They may bring harm upon you to try to get you to make the right confession. But don't lie to yourself. What is in your heart needs to be represented by your words and not something else. You speak in accordance with the orientation of your heart and don't do otherwise. Now we don't take oaths today. Occasionally, in a court of law at a marriage ceremony, we're not in the way of doing what the Pharisees did, which is to present ourselves as trustworthy, to make good on our claim by appealing to either an authority external to us or something of value. They're the two principles that Jesus brings into view here. The Pharisees would appeal to an authority external to themselves, God, or to something which is valuable to them, in this case, their very head. Authority, value, they would make oaths according to that structure. We don't typically, in the course of normal conversation, verify our words by swearing either on the basis of an authority or a value. But the principle exists. The principle continues. What is the authority that might cause us to bear the burden of dishonesty? I think it is quite simply the crowd. We're in a day where people are more connected than ever before. And by virtue of the mediums that we communicate with, very quickly we see a consensus developing around an issue. A consensus developing around an idea, this notion of groupthink, gains momentum with incredible speed, and then the pressure comes for you to speak. If the authority is the crowd, the value that we prize so highly is acceptance. The authority that reigns over us is this group think, this collective consensus that develops so quickly and can so often develop out of a position of ignorance And then it exerts itself on you and your desire, the thing which you value, is to be accepted. And so very quickly you can find yourself in a position where you are willing to say something that you don't actually believe. You are failing to live with integrity because you are bowing to the pressure of the authority in a desire to be accepted. And I would say very practically as a word of application, be careful of the conversations into which you are ready to enter. Be careful of the spheres in which you seek to have a voice. Be careful of the influence that you desire. Because you can very quickly get yourself into a position where you are not being true with your words to the intentions of your heart. And you lack integrity now carrying the burden of dishonesty. So where do we go? 
What is the solution? Jesus pushes back against the Pharisees' complex system of taking oaths, and his response is so short, so simple, and yet so profound. Verse 37, considering now the blessing of integrity, what is a better path? Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, says Jesus. The text in the English Bible doesn't quite capture what is happening in the original. There, let the words, let your words be yes, yes, or no, no. And Jesus repeats each, not for a point of emphasis, but to highlight the idea of persistence, continuity. Let what you say be yes, yes. Or let what you say be no, no. The idea is when somebody comes to you and they seek your opinion, they seek your intentions, they want a commitment from you, you give your answer, and it might be yes. When they come back, you say exactly the same thing again. Tell me more. Give me more. I want a different answer from you. You've got nothing more to say. The answer that I gave you on the first hand is exactly the same on the second visit and the third and the fourth. Your yes continues to be a yes. Or it might be that you say no. Whatever the issue is that's presented, you might say no, but you keep saying no. They come back and now there's maybe some pressure exerted, but your answer doesn't change. It does accurately reflect your heart and sure enough, your feet tread out a path that is in accordance with the answer you gave. Jesus teaches us in this ever so simple and brief retort to the Pharisees that your actions need to match your words and your words need to match your heart. That is what it is to be a person of integrity. And notice the inference. If the Pharisees had conducted themselves by appealing to that which was external to themselves, that was the only way that they could find to present themselves as trustworthy, then it must mean that Jesus' teaching in verse 37 is an issue of the heart. In order to be a person of the utmost integrity, you need a transformed heart. Your heart will not be consistent or faithful for as long as it has not fixed itself upon the Lord Jesus. Or to put it this way, the very first step towards integrity is to confess to God that you lack it. You come before God and you confess that you have lived a duplicitous life that you are someone who has not come through with your actions in accordance with your words, and oftentimes your words have not betrayed what you truly believe. Confess that sin today. Confess that sin because it is for that sin that Jesus shed his blood. It is for your lack of integrity that Jesus went to the cross. And as you confess that sin, you then 
gaze upon the integrity of the Lord Jesus. You bring your lack of integrity to the cross and you gaze upon the steadfastness, the faithfulness, the utmost integrity of Christ who only ever represented with his words what is exactly the inclination of his heart which was the will of the Father and then he walked out a path of obedience all the way unto death. The utmost integrity is found in the Lord Jesus and he died so as to gift it to you, to credit it to you. You are clothed through your confession of sin and profession of faith. You are clothed in his perfect integrity and thereby accepted before your father in heaven. And then with transformed heart, God leads you in a path of integrity. Such that you actually can live your life by the grace of God and with the accountability and help of the church. You can live your life in such a way that your yes means yes. Your no means no. And the blessing, the blessing of integrity, first and foremost, is that your conscience is free. To live a life of integrity means that your conscience is wonderfully free. Now, you might upset people along the way. You might say yes when they want a no. You might say no when they want a yes. Jesus makes no promises that you won't upset people. Not that long ago, we were considering Jesus' actual promise that his disciples would face persecution. I refuse to bow down to this idea because it's not what I believe. And persecution may come. You may upset people along the way, but your conscience will be free. The blessing of integrity is the peace that attends it. And the blessing of integrity is the reputation that you then gain. You become known as you live your life in the community, in the church, in the world. You become known as someone who does exactly what they say. Someone who is careful with their words. There'll be times when you choose not to speak. But when you do, you do exactly what you said you would do. And so your reputation goes before you so as to shine a light on the gospel. To shine a glorious light on God's redemptive work in your life. The blessing of integrity is that your reputation is known by all. And finally, the blessing of integrity is that on the last day, Christ welcomes you into glory because you have lived a life that fits with your confession. You are not one of those who Jesus will go on to teach about. You said to me, Lord, Lord, depart from me. I never knew you. Your works didn't accord with your confession. That's an issue of integrity. You said you knew me, yet you didn't behave in accordance with my commands. That's a lack of integrity. To live with integrity means on the last day, Jesus will say, your life, your actions, your behavior corresponds with your confession. And your confession is an accurate representation of your heart. I know that you love me. May God lead us in the path of integrity, for our flourishing and His glory. Pray with me now.
Father, we give you thanks for these words from your Son, our Lord. They are challenging to think about the all-encompassing nature of integrity. It speaks to every area of our life. You desire that our actions would reflect our words. That when we give our commitment to something, we follow through and do it at all costs. And that when we speak, we represent what we believe. Your desire is that your people would be exuding integrity. Where we have failed, I ask that you would show that to us. Where we have lacked integrity, by your Holy Spirit, would you reveal that to us and quicken us unto repentance. Father, give us wisdom and discernment to know how to apply this teaching amidst all of the details of our lives, all of the responsibilities that you have placed before us. May we be people of integrity. I pray that our actions would match our words. Our words would match our heart. That you would be honored. That the gospel would be magnified. And that we would flourish. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.